questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Everyone's favorite Freemason strikes again with Cinema Symbolism 3, The Mysteries of Occult Hollywood Unveiled, applying his expert and objective observations. Robert W. Sullivan IV, Esquire, analyzes a new state of movies, revealing Tinseltown's esoteric and dark secrets. From Gnosticism to Freemasonry, to Black Magic and Kabbalah, no rock is left unturned. Listeners beware. Listeners beware. This fish is not for everyone because sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, EMP shield, solar, and EMP protection, rebounders, CBD pure hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Robert W. Sullivan IV, Esquire, is a historian, philosopher, antiquarian, jurist, lay theologian, writer, mystic, radio TV personality, showman, best-selling author, CEO, and lawyer. He is the author of five books, The Royal Ark of Enoch, Cinema Symbolism 1, 2, and 3, and A Pact with the Devil. The latter is a work of fiction. Robert Sullivan is a Freemason of Amicable St. John's Lodge Number 25 and a 32nd degree of the Scottish Rite, Valley of Baltimore, Orient of Maryland. And he joins us once again. Hello, Robert, and welcome back to Veritas. Well, thank you, Mel. Thank you for having me on uh, Veritas. It's my pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to uh, this evening's conversation. Likewise, and as, as a lot of my listeners know, for the past I would say almost two years, we have been discussing a lot of, you know, the pandemic and, 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 and perhaps people feel a little bit down, but it's time for us to escape and go back to our more traditional topic. Of course, we're going to continue discussing what matters and the and geopolitical arena, but sometimes I want to escape and discuss what we were here to do at the very beginning, which discuss the occult, uh, discuss uh, Freemasonry, these things that are hidden from us. But I'm going to ask you a question first that might make you uncomfortable, Robert. I'm sure you won't take it that way, but I'm sure you know why I'm asking. You are a Freemason, correct? Yes, sir. I may have asked you this before, but I'd like to recap. A lot of people might be asking themselves, you know, Mel, how can we trust what Robert tells us in his books? Great books, by the way, and I've read all of them except for the, the, the newest one, which I still have here. How can we trust somebody who belongs to a secret society where there are rules where you're not supposed to disclose everything, right? How do we know that what you're telling us is true? And I mean no disrespect with that question. 
No, I understand. I think that's I think the question answers itself. I think that's for the exact reason why you should believe me is because I do have an inside track with it. I am a Freemason. I have a deep understanding of the rituals and the symbols. Um, I the, the book, the first book I wrote, which is about what I would call esoteric or occult Freemasonry, um, I think divulges much. I, I have never had anyone read it and think that I was presenting misinformation. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't waste anyone's time with that. Um, I present the material as I know it to be true and ha- as it works. Um, there's certainly a lot of you know bogus information out there that I do kind of um, scratch my head at and wonder, you know, how, how did that ever get out there? Um, but, um, you know, I have never, ever shied away from my Masonic membership, and I certainly would not hide behind it or anything like that. I think that would be that, that would discredit me. So, um, you know, right off the bat, when I first started podcasting, which has now been good grief going on eight years, I believe it has. I mean, I, I've always disclosed that I'm a Freemason. Um, I, I probably the all the books probably have a certain Masonic bent to them. Um, and uh, the way I look at it, Mel, is if, if a person doesn't want to listen to me or doesn't want to read the book because of that, that's completely up to them. Um, but I know that the books, um, especially when it comes to Masonic symbolism, Masonic history, I mean, at some points, you know, anything else, you do speculate a little bit. You have to. Um, because some some stuff we just don't have 100 percent information on, um, you know, and we're forced to speculate, like, you know, how old is Freemasonry? I mean, we could debate that for hours. Um, but the material presented in the book um, is, is certainly based on my um, knowledge and understanding of Freemasonry. And um, I would not waste anyone's time, let alone mine, um, presenting misinformation or disinformation or anything like that. If If there was something I was skeptical on or wasn't sure about. I would not include it within my book. That's fair. And I really appreciate the candor. And I've interviewed you several times. Had I suspected that you were not telling us the truth or at least what we perceive to be the truth, our interview number one would have been the last one. But this is probably your fourth one, I believe. Yes, sir. This is, uh, I believe, I've been on for Royal Arch of Enoch, Cinema Symbolism 1, 2. So, yeah, this will be the fourth interview. That's right. That's right. So, obviously... Now, when it comes to, if I can use the term club, the private club for Freemasonry, who can belong to it? I mean, we'll discuss the movies and so on shortly, but I just want to get into this because this is an area of expertise that not a lot of people have. Who can belong and how can people apply? Sure. No, I have, I have no problem answering these questions. Um, um, the, the, to, in order to join a Masonic lodge, you have to be a male. Um, women cannot join. Um, I know that there are exceptions to this in Europe, um, but Masonic lodges in the United States are exclusively male. Um, you have to be at a certain age, um, and the age varies. Um, if your father is a Freemason, I believe, I believe, and some states vary on this also. I, I, I should point that out, um, and this is a source of endless confusion. There is no uniform United States edict when it comes to Freemasonry. Each state operates on its own. Um, each state is beholden to a grand lodge of its state. So, for example, during your introduction, you said I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. So I am beholden to the Grand Lodge of Maryland. The Grand Lodge of Maryland's rules may differ a little bit from the Grand Lodge of New York or Boston or Massachusetts, let's say, or uh, Wyoming or Virginia. Um, so so it's a state by state run organization. And the rules vary. Um, in Maryland, you have to be if your father is a Freemason, you can join at 18 years old. If your father is not a Freemason, I believe it's 21 you have to wait to. Um, 
any male can join. Um, you petition a lodge. The way that usually works is you know someone who is a Freemason and you just simply speak to them. And, you know, like, for example, um, the way I joined was I had a mutual friend through my parents who was a Freemason and he wore the jewelry. He wore a ring. And I, my father was not a Freemason, but my grandfathers were. They're deceased. So I asked him, I said, hey, I see you're a Freemason. I recognize the ring. I recognize the emblem on the ring, you know, the square encompasses. Um, I'd like to join. Um, and this was in the summer of 1996. And he asked me a few questions and he could see I was serious about it. Um, and and the, bar, the ball started rolling based on that. Um, the next thing I knew, about two weeks later, I got a petition in the mail. I filled it out. I mailed in a check. At, at the time, I believe it was for $100. Um, that, this was 25 years ago, so I'm sure it's gone up by now. And uh, the way I went through it was um, they set up a, um, a, a committee um, on me. It, it, it comprised of three brothers in the lodge, um, and they interviewed me. Um, they just wanted to make sure basically I was a head, a torso, two arms, two legs, um, you know, just was a normal functioning person. They will ask you um, to make sure, you know, you, you cannot be committed a crime of moral turpitude. They don't care about speeding tickets, um, but nothing, you know, serious. And um, two of the interviews I did over the phone, the third I met with the brother in, in person. Um, and after that, the, the next thing I was advised was, of course, I'm not going to the lodge or anything. I mean, I'm, I'm just applying. Um, the guy I knew was calling me and just giving me updates. And the next thing I knew, he said, the, your, your petition will be voted upon. Um, and he said, that's coming up. And then it was voted upon. And I received a, a phone call the next day and said it was approved. Um, and that I would be in contact with, I'd be contacted by one of the um, lodge officers, which I believe was the secretary, and a date would be arranged um, during one of the lodge meetings where I'd come up and receive the entered apprentice degree, which is the first one, um, which for me occurred in January of 1997. Um, so that's how I joined. Um, if you know somebody who's a Mason, ask them. Um, ask them about membership, and if they are genuine, they should oblige you. If you do not know anyone who is a Freemason and you want to join, my I've been asked this question numerous times. My advice to that person would be, um, depending on what state you are in, so let's just hypothetically say, let's just go with the state of New York. Um, if you are in the state of New York and you want to join a Masonic Lodge and you do not know anyone who is a Freemason, um, contact the New York Grand Lodge. Um, they will have a website inevitably. They will have a phone number, probably to a secretary. Call them. and and explain to them as the way I said it, you know, Hey, I'm so-and-so I'm living in New York. Um, I, you know, they'll probably want your phone number and address, probably an email at this point in time. And, um, you know, what, what they will do, um, is they will match your address with the local Masonic lodge that is closest to you. And at that point in time, um, if you are interested, they should put you in contact with the secretary of the lodge closest to you, to your home address. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the ball will start rolling and you'll get a, you'll, you'll probably get a phone call from the secretary of this local blue lodge and you'll, you'll get a petition in the mail and the ball will start rolling. You'll fill it out, send it in with a check and uh, a committee will be sent out and you'll be set up, excuse me, and you'll be on your way. So that's traditionally how one joins a Masonic lodge in the United States. These are all important questions that I've always had. And I don't know why I didn't discuss them with you, but I'm sure a lot of people ask themselves, you know, who can join, which you just answered. What is the purpose of Freemasonry? That's a great question. Um, and again, there's no, the, the answer to that question is subjective. I can only give it to you from my point of view. 
Um, uh, you may ask 10 other Freemasons and they're going to give you a, a different answer. Um, there are many reasons why a person joins a Masonic lodge. They may want to carry on a family tradition as, as I did when I, when I joined, um, I come from a long line of Maryland Freemasons, So that was sort of my motivation for joining. Um, people enjoy fraternal organizations. I was a member of a fraternity, fraternity house in college. And, um, some people want to continue that one. Obviously when they leave college, <clears throat> um, they still want to be part of a fraternity. So masonry or odd fellows, um, would be the likely um, organization to join. People join to do ph philanthropy, um, charitable work. Um, people join for the camaraderie. Um, I joined it to carry on a kind of family tradition, and through my membership, I became very interested in, I, I, I was always interested in mysticism and uh, the esoteric and things like that. So becoming a, a, a member in, in my lodge, which was Amicable St. John's Lodge Number 25, um, I, I'm going through the rituals and understanding the symbolism and, and being hands-on with it. Um, it really sort of opened my eyes and was sort of, you know, I, I've said this on numerous interviews. I've probably have said it on one of my past ones with you, Mel. Um, it's really because of my Masonic training in part that I believe I am able to do this so well and decode movies esoterically and, and see symbolism, uh, and things of that nature. I mean, I, I owe that to my Masonic membership. Again, it wasn't, I mean, I didn't join my Masonic life thinking, oh, I'm going to get a primer in esoteric symbolism. It just kind of evolved out of it. But um, certainly if, if you if you go through the Masonic rituals um, and you really take the time, and that's the key words, take the time to read, um, you know, some of the Masonic greats, you know, like Manly P. Hall, Albert Mackey, Albert Pike, who get into the sort of deeper symbolism of the rituals and the symbols. Um, in my opinion, it opens up a treasure trove. Um, and you'll really be able to decode and see things on an esoteric level that that previously you will not be able to see. So um, that that also seems to be a motivation now, at least with the younger generation. Um, certainly there, there seems to be a renewed, at least at least in my opinion, a renewed interest in what I would call the esoteric side of the craft. And m many, many young people now are joining it for that reason. And probably the Internet movies like National Treasure and the Da Vinci Code and things like that are probably somewhat responsible for it, but there is definitely a revived interest in what I would call the esoteric or occult side of the craft, as it were. I've been told, Robert, that the majority of all the astronauts that the allegedly walked on the moon, and I say allegedly, my listeners know why I say that, but uh, Neil Armstrong was not a Freemason. However, his father was. Does that make him a Freemason? No. Um, just having a family member um, in a Masonic lodge does not make someone else a Freemason. Um, there are numerous other Masonic orders that people can belong to that do not make them Freemasons. Um, there's a women, a woman's auxiliary organization called the Eastern Star, um, which is sort of like a just that it's a Masonic woman's organization, but a women that does not a Freemason make. Um, they can call themselves Sisters of the Eastern Star, but they can't call themselves female Freemasons. Likewise, there is a Masonic Boy Scouts organization known as Demolay. Um, and you can join that. And a lot of people who it's, it's, who do join that go on to become Freemasons. But if you join Demolay and you stop and you don't go any further, and once your membership, you know, you leave Demolay, you don't go any further, you are still not a Freemason. This is the case of uh, case in point of Walt Disney. 
um, Walt Disney was a member of the Molay, but never joined a Masonic Lodge. So you can't hold him out as a Freemason. You can certainly hold him out as a member of Molay, um, but you cannot hold him out as a Freemason. And likewise, same thing with Neil Armstrong. Um, if his father was a Freemason, that's fine, but that certainly does not make him a Freemason. And you mentioned how there are no female Freemasons. I remember I had a conversation with Dr. Cecile Rivager from, Fran- from Southern France, a female. She bro- wrote a book titled Black Freemasonry. And I believe, if I remember correctly, she said that there are some Freem- female Freemasons and lodges in Europe. Is that true? Yes, there, there are um, lodges of female Freemasons in Europe, um, but this, this is controversial. Um, some are recognized, some are not. Um, they are not recognized in the United States. If you were a woman um, in a lodge of Freemasons in France, let's say, and you came to the United States, you certainly could not come into a lodge in the United States. Um, and again, it, it comes down to recognition. Like, like for example, I mean, if, if a group of women wanted to meet um, in the United States and got a Masonic ritual book with the rituals and certainly put on Masonic aprons or whatever, I mean, they could call themselves, you know, a lodge of Freemasons, but they certainly wouldn't be recognized by the state grand lodge or anything like that, which is, I believe, all important. So it's a question of legitimacy. Um, you know, there, there are, you know, women can form Masonic lodges, but they're kind of, they're they're what you call in the United States clandestine lodges. Um, and they're not recognized. Um, so, um, there, there are, there, there have been movements underway, um, in the last 10 to 15 years to try to get this more and more recognized and to get it in, but it, it really ultimately falls flat on its face. It never really seems to go anywhere. Um, and certainly in the United States, there are no lodges, of women Freemasons. And if there are, they're certainly not recognized by any of the state grand lodges. Let me read this, just a quick excerpt from the synopsis from Dr. Reverger's interview with me. When the first Masonic lodges opened in Paris in the early 18th century, their membership included traders, merchants, musketeers, clergymen, and women, both white and black. This was not the case in the United States where black Freemasons were not eligible for membership in existing lodges. For this reason, the first official charter for an exclusively black lodge, the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, was granted by the Grand Lodge of England rather than any American chapter. Now, why why is it that it's allowed in other parts of the world, but not in the United States? Well, the the, the Prince Hall Lodges have subsequently been recognized. Uh, I am not an expert on Grand Lodge Freemasonry in France, so... Um, you know, why certain lot, like I said, it's, it, it runs by a state by state jurisdiction, a country by country, um, thing, why they would do that. I mean, uh, you know, in the early days of Freemasonry, a lot of this, this was unauthorized. I mean, there, there was no, it's not like it is today where there was no real network. Lodges were just popping up on local levels. Um, and certainly within England, um, there, they, they didn't have, um, no, no lodge in England had women in it. Um, the, the France uh, experiment, um, you are into a whole controversial um, thing when you get into European continental Freemasonry. Some things are recognized. Some things are not recognized. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very complex um, thing. So, you know, the, some lodges take their orders from the Grand Lodge of France, but not from the Grand Lodge of England, which, you know, claims to have, you know, be the you know, official body for issuing all the charters. The Grand Lodge 
in in Massachusetts did not recognize the Prince Hall lodges at first. They have now because one of the requirements back then was um, in order to become a Mason, you had to be free born. That was a word that was always thrown around with the American lodge was in order to join a, a, a lodge of, of American Masons. One of the requirements was free born and of your own free will. Um, that, that is that, and that's still used. Um, and of course, back then, if you were born into slavery or were born a slave, that excluded you. Um, and of course, what happened was, um, you know, as the revolution appeared, the English, the English Lodge, the English Grand Lodge was kind of trying at this point to somewhat subvert the American Freemasons, which were abandoning George III um, and going with George Washington. So, uh, you know, because of this, this is why they recognized the Prince Hall, Hall Lodges. Um, the there there was throughout the 19th and 20th century um, this in the United States, this controversy going back and forth and it just never ended was, you know, were the Prince Hall Lodges in the United States recognized? I mean, some were, some weren't, um, you know, some were, but, you know, you know, it, it just caused no end of confusion because a, a Prince Hall Lodge may have been recognized in New York, but then in Maryland, they weren't. Um, so you could see where this caused, you know, endless amounts of, of problems. Uh, it was finally until about the early 2000s, literally, you're talking 20 years ago, that the states really started looking at the Prince Hall Lodges and started recognize them. And I believe in 2021, all the Prince Hall Lodges are recognized by all the states as legitimate Masonic Lodges. But I know that when I joined in 1996-97, Maryland at that time did not recognize the Prince Hall Lodges. Um, the, the, the reason that was given was, um, it had nothing to do with the freeborn or free will. The reason that was given in 1996 was that the Prince Hall Lodges in Maryland weren't doing the ritual, right? There was something they were doing in the ritual that they didn't like. Um, and until that was corrected, they weren't going to recognize them. But of course, you know, there was always this underpinning of, oh, is this racism or something like that? Um, and of course, you know, no one wants a bad rap or have that, have racism hanging over them. So my understanding is, you know, it was really in the early 2000s, starting probably around like 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002, in that time frame, that, um, you know, the, the lodges were really, you know, the Prince Hall lodges were finally all recognized by the state grand lodges. But um, no, no women's lodges. There are no women Freemasons in the United States. reason why I ask you is because we hear of this woke and cancel culture out there who is penetrating every single institution. For example, Boy Scouts are now, if I remember correctly, are now being forced to accept uh, girls. Um, and I'm reading this article here from the Telegraph. It says, Millennials and vegans, welcome. Have the Freemasons gone woke? That's the title, but it's also a question for you. Not to my knowledge, they haven't. Um, it, it's still a private organization, and the bottom line is, in order to petition, in order to get grant entry into it, you have to be approved by all the members of the lodge. Um, and this is, of course, where the term blackball comes from. If someone petitions a lodge, and for whatever reason, they can be denied, um, and there's no debate on this or anything. Um, for, for example, if, if you bring someone into your lodge, um, and what, for whatever reason, someone you know doesn't like them or you know has an issue with them and they're already a member, you just drop the black ball. It's completely anonymous. No one knows who did it. Um, so, you know, the Masonic lodges, um, to my knowledge have not gone woke. On the other hand, they are very, you know, open-minded. Um, I don't think they're going to turn people away, um, for, for anything like that. They certainly don't turn people away for political beliefs or religious beliefs. 
Um, the, the only the only thing I know of it's kind of changed in the last 15 years. Um, and I don't even know if Maryland's doing it. I know some jurisdictions are, but I don't I don't know if Maryland is, is they were doing criminal background checks um, into people. But but like I said, I know I know in some jurisdictions they were doing that. I don't know if that's taking root in the lodge you know, and excuse me, in Maryland lodges. But um, to my knowledge, I don't know. I, don't, I have no reason to believe that the uh, lodges in the United States are going woke or anything like that. I, I mean, I, I don't you know, it, it, like I said, it's a. Uh, you know, there are women's auxiliary and it's an all male secret society. And, you know, I, I don't anticipate that changing anytime soon. What do you get? What do you get out of being a Freemason? Well, again, this is subjective. Um, you know, you can ask a hundred different Masons and you're going to get a hundred different answers. I can only give it to you from my point of view, which is um, the, I got out of it um, sort of, a, uh, what I would call like an agnostic epiphany or awakening, having my third eye awakened and was, or open probably is the better word. And, um, being, you know, being able to see the world symbolically and be able to understand things symbolically and interpret it. Um, and it's certainly, especially in a contextual, um, surrounding, which is critical to this research, um, a symbol presented one way, maybe something else when a symbol presented another way. Um, in, a, in, a, in a different context. So that's what I got out of it. But plus, you know, I mean, I love my lodge membership. I love the brothers up there. Uh, they're a great bunch of guys. And um, for me, you know, it's carrying on a family tradition. I come from a long line of Maryland Masons. So I have, I mean, I've been a, Ma a Freemason now for 25 years. I have no regrets about it. And I can certainly say emphatically that without my Masonic membership, none of my books would exist. And by the way, I ask you about the astronauts because I've always been curious. You see a lot of these pictures of the astronauts holding their helmets when they don't have their gloves on. And you can clearly see their f Masonic or Freemason uh, rings with them. Why do you think there's a, a high preponderance of Freemasons in NASA? I'm thinking of Buzz Aldrin. I'm thinking of the late Edgar, Dr. Edgar Mitchell and many others. Well, you'll find, you'll find Freemason Freemasons permeating all walks of life, not only astronauts. Um, NASA was founded by Masons. Uh, the country was is founded by Masons. Um, it's a Masonic Republic. The United States of America is a Freemasonic country. Every symbol, its way of government, um, all its symbols are all Freemasonic. All the colleges and universities are all Freemasonic. Um, and NASA is no exception. I mean, the eagle has landed is Freemasonic. Um, you know, Apollo 11, the sun god going to the moon, the sacred feminine, it's the alchemical wedding. Um, so, you know, it's all very symbolic. It's all very Masonic. And, um, but as far as, you know, the overload of astronauts, no, you'll find, uh, Freemasons in all walks of life, Supreme Court justices, congressmen, presidents, um, lawyers, doctors. Um, you know, I mean, when, when, when I get, uh, my little Masonic flyer from amicable, well, amicable St. John's Lodge now. Um, and you get who's petitioning the lodge uh, for membership. It always has their name and their occupation. And boy, oh boy, they come from all walks of life. Police officers, doctors, lawyers, cab drivers, um, you name it. It runs the gamut. And, um, you know, when it comes to the United States, it's, you know, when you're dealing with the institutions of the United States, whether it be the federal government, um, the CIA, the FBI, NASA, you know, these are all, you know, have these, you know, imbued with Freemasonry because the country is in of itself a Masonic Republic. And where and when do Masons meet? Is there a specific interval of time when they meet? Uh, well, it's, 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 each lodge varies. Um, mine is twice a month. I believe it's on the second 
and fourth uh, Thursdays, or maybe the second and third Thursdays. I'd have to go look. I just can't remember off the top of my head. But every every lodge varies. Um, you know, some meet on Monday. Every you know, every other Monday, uh, every other Wednesday. Um, it's usually twice a month that they meet, um, and they meet through September through June. Um, there is no lodge meetings in July and August. Um, that's what's called going dark. And the reason for that is um, because of the heat. Um, back in the day, there was no air conditioning. So in the summer months, they closed it down because it was too hot. Um, of course, we have air conditioning nowadays, but they continue on that tradition. There is no Masonic Lodge meetings in July and August. When you meet, do you know the level where the others are, for example, with you are 32nd degree, do you know the level of degrees that others have? Well, the, the, in a blue lodge, the, um, the, um, it's all, you have to be third degree beyond that. Who knows? Um, the, in, in the, you know, the, the blue lodge meetings are only, or, you know, twice a month in order to get into that, you have to be a third degree. Um, beyond that, who, who's in the Scottish Rite or gets grotto or the York Rite. Um, you'd have to just ask the person. I mean, you might be able to guess it from, um, you know, what ring or jewelry they're wearing or something like that. But um, the, 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 lodge, the local lodge meetings or the blue lodge, you have to be third degree to get into. Third degree. But you don't know if somebody's a 12th degree or a 20th degree. You don't know that. You would not, you would not know and you'd have no reason to know. Okay. And can there be 33rd, 33rd degree masons in that meeting or do they meet somewhere else? No, they could come in. I mean, if, if as long as you're a blue lodge, as long as you're a third degree in the blue lodge, you can you can come in. You could be a thirty third. I'm a thirty second in the Scottish Rite. Um, the Scottish Rite usually uh, doesn't meet that often, um, but certainly you know the high degree bodies. In order to go to a blue lodge meeting, you have to be of the third degree. That's it. You hear it say the, the third degree is the highest degree in Freemasonry. You could be a thirty second um, in the Scottish Rite or in the Knights Templar. Um, but in order to get access to a Blue Lodge meeting, you have to be the third degree. What conditions, and, and I apologize, it will get to the movies, but all these questions are just coming to mind. Who confers a promotion? Say you are a first degree, second degree, fifth degree. What and how and who confers the promotion? Under what conditions? Well, well in order to join the Blue Lodge, you, you, you join and you go through degrees one, two, and three. That's it. I mean, you know, you, you, no one promotes it. That's the, you know, that's the ritual structure. You go in, you get the entered apprentice degree, then you have to pass a catechism. Then you get the second degree, you pass a catechism, then you get the master Mason degree, then you get a catechism and you're done. How long, um, how long is that process from one to three? It varies from lodge to lodge. It usually runs about six to nine months to go okay. through the process. Um, and then once that, that you're done. Um, and if you want to join a high degree body, like the York Rite or the Scottish Rite, that's entirely up to you. Um, and you go through it again and you petition the local, you know, body of the Scottish right or the York right. And if you're accepted, you'll just go through the, you know, degree structure. So what happens? Okay. So you're third degree, you belong to a blue lodge. What do you have to do to continue ascending in the ladder? You cut a check to the Scottish right and fill out a petition and send it in. And that's it. <laughs> All right. So from third, third degree to 32nd, for example, what actions, right. what do you have to do? How long would it take from third to 32nd? Well, it would be four, it would be fourth. It would be fourth to 32nd. Fourth to 32nd. Okay. Yeah. No, you, you, you would just, it's the Scottish right is, um, is not, 
like if we were talking the Scottish Rite, the Scottish Rite is not like the Blue Lodge where the ritual is participatory. The Scottish Rite, you sit in an amphitheater and you watch the rituals are like a passion play. Um, and you just sit there and watch them. Um, this usually takes about anywhere from six, six months to nine months to go through it. Um, you know, they do a couple rituals, you know, you'll, you'll get a, you'll get a thing where it's like they're doing rituals four through six. Um, and then you'll come back in two weeks and they'll do rituals six through 12 or 14. Then you you go up, um, and you just go up through 32nd and that's the end of it. And it could be about nine months, you're saying? Six to nine months, usually. Well, for some reason, I thought it was a lifetime before you got to. No, no, no. You could join the Scottish right in a day if you want to. Oh, wow. Um, you're only required to go through degrees four, 14, uh, I think it's 22 and 32. Um, and once that's it, you can actually do the Scottish right in a single day. Um, but other than that, if you want to go through all the degrees, usually six to nine months to do it. And the 33rd degree, that is... Uh, you can be elected, but it has to be by the Supreme Council of the Scottish Rite, correct? It's, 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 um, you can't solicit it. It's off. It's, it's a, um, it's a degree that's offered, um, invite you, you can't solicit it. You just get selected for it. Um, and you can't petition for it. And if the, the Scottish Rite guys in your Orient want to give it to you, you'll get it. If not, you'll stay at a 32nd. And you have to make it major contributions to society or to masonry or in general in order to be selected. Can you give some examples of people who have been selected to be 33rd degree or above? Well, well, I don't know of any degree above it um, that's recognized. Um, But like people like J. Edgar Hoover, no, I don't know if J. Edgar Hoover did get the 33rd. And Harry Truman did, I believe um, Franklin Franklin Roosevelt did. Um, off the top of my head, I just don't know. It's more of an honorary body. It has no power. It has no authority. It's certainly not the highest degree of the Scottish Rite. That would be the 13th. Many free, many people who talk about this are completely confused about this. Um, the highest degree in the Scottish Rite is the 13th, called the Royal Arch of Enoch. That is the end of the Masonic story. Um, this is the seventh degree in the York Rite. The degrees that come after it are actually are numerically higher, but the um, but the story is actually goes back in time. Um, so the degrees are actually out of order. They're out of sync. The actual highest degree in the Scottish Rite is the 13th. Um, the 33rd is just an honorary uh, order that really has no authority. Um, and again, it's just an honorary body. Um, the Illuminati characters all come out of the 13th degree and the 7th degree of the York Rite. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, 14 elected presidents have been uh, Masons. Uh, Washington. Monroe, Jackson, Polk, Buchanan, Johnson, Garfield, McKinley, Roosevelt, Taft, Harding, uh, Roosevelt again, because it's Theodore and, and Franklin, uh, Truman, right. Lyndon Johnson, and Gerald Ford, who was the unelected president. 15. Correct. You can throw, you can throw Lyndon Johnson out. Um, Lyndon Johnson received the entered apprentice degree and dropped out. Um, uh-huh. So you can toss him out. Um, and, and these, these when, when they are credited as Masonic presidents, these are just guys who have received the third degree in the Blue Lodge. That's it. This doesn't count. You know, some are Scottish right, some are York right, um, some are not at all. Some just do the Blue Lodge, like George Washington. George Washington was not a member of any high degree body. He was just in the Blue Lodge. Why is there this negative connotation? And this could be people being misinformed or disinformed. When somebody says, oh, so-and-so is the third 33rd degree Mason, watch it. Why is there a negative connotation, Robert? 
um, ignorance because um, they are assuming that's the higher highest new. It's the end of the line, so they're assuming that because it's the highest numeric degree, that that's where the power rests. Um, it just does not. Um, if you go back and look at the history of the country, it, 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 the 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 end all of the Masonic ritual, the highest degree, really is the thirteenth. It's the Royal Arch, and it's because of what's going on in that degree. Um, the degrees that come after it take place prior to that. So you go back in time and you kind of go backwards. You go back to the future almost. Um, but all, all, when, when the country was founded, the guy who was running the Illuminati in the United States, a guy by the name of DeWitt Clinton, um, the, the, the degree that you had to have was the seventh degree in the York Rite. And it's more the York Rite than it is the Scottish Rite because that's where the name of God is recovered. Um, and if you're familiar with Masonic lore and the literature, um, once you obtain that secret name of God, that was a de facto warrant to rule over the populace, what Albert Pike would call the vulgar masses. So it's really the 13th in the Scottish Rite and the 7th in the York Rite that is where the conspiracy revolves around. Here are some famous Freemasons alive today. Not sure of the their degrees. Silvia Berlusconi, the former... Uh, Italian uh, Prime Minister, Jesse Jackson, Steve Wozniak, the uh, the uh, co-founder of Apple, Michael Richards, and this one, I'm surprised. Michael Richards, he played Cosmo Kramer in Seinfeld, is said to be a 33rd degree Freemason. What's your take on that? Yeah, he is. Um, I have. Numerous- oh, you knew that. You knew that. Of course. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, I mean, I've, I have had Masonic magazines come to me with uh, him on the cover of it. Um, so yeah, I, I knew that, um, he was a Freemason. There's another one out there that will surprise a lot of people. Um, he is not alive anymore, but Richard Pryor, um, the comedian, he was a Freemason. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly some comedians in Hollywood, uh, have been Freemasons. Uh, I believe, uh, Oliver Hardy of Laurel and Hardy was a Freemason. I believe, um, Bud Abbott of Abbott and Costello was a Freemason, so, yeah, I mean, like I said, when you're dealing with Freemasons, you're really running the gamut of um, people who join and are, you know, you know, you, they come from all walks of life. Do you consider Richards, uh, Cosmo Kramer, to have contrib- contributed enough to be considered a 33rd degree Mason? Sure. I mean, it's, it's not for me to say, um, you know, if, if, if the conferring body of the, of the Orient that he's you know, a member of decides that, Hey, let's give the 33rd to him. It's good enough for me. Why should anyone join? Well, it depends. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's really, it's up to the individual person. Um, I would say don't join if, if it, your heart's not into it. Um, you know, one of the worst things that you see in a lodge is someone trying to bring someone in who has been cajoled into it. Um, you know, they show up one time and you never see them again. So make sure it's in your heart, um, that you want to join. Um, if you, you know, if you're interested in fraternity and brotherhood and doing charitable work and, uh, things like that, um, you should join. If you're interested in, um, receiving an esoteric education, perhaps, and learning how to see things symbolically, you should join. Um, but you know, I I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for someone else. I'm just asking questions like a journalist. I'm not judging anything at all. I just, I'm very curious. So anybody who says, how do you join? Uh, do you need someone from within if you have no relationship or no links to Freemasonry? Well, I, I think I answered this. Um, if you if you know someone who is a Freemason, 
um, you can ask them for a petition to join. If you don't know anybody, contact the Grand Lodge of your state. And expectations, because some people might think, is this almost like Scientology? You see, this, there's, there's this cultish way about it. And I'm asking, again, like a journalist, because this is what I hear from other people. But again, you're saying that is probably this information or misinformation. What's that? The, 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 the cultish aspect of it. Oh, I, I don't think so at all. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't think it's a, I don't, I, I've never, I've never ever had any sort of feeling like that at all. Um, you know, you, you can join the lodge meetings are voluntary. Um, you can leave it at any time you want to. Um, if you don't like it and you want out, don't pay your dues and your membership will be tossed out. Um, again, lodge meetings are completely voluntary. You don't have to go. Um, I haven't been to a lodge meeting in quite some time. Uh, I've probably been to more lectures, given more lectures than I actually have been to a meeting. So no, I mean, I mean, the, the rituals are inherently Judeo-Christian. Um, they have esoteric underpinnings. I don't dispute that. But, um, you know, so, so I mean, you know, it, it's, it's all subjective, Mel. Um, there's no uniform answer. I, I've, I've talked to people who, you know, who have gone through it like myself and have no problem with it. I talked to a guy who said, oh, I did the first degree and I dropped out. It was too mystic for me. I it just, I, you know, it just wasn't for me. Hmm. Um, so, you know, again, it's just a subjective, you know, thing. Um, some people like it. Some people don't like it. Um, some people go through it. You see them, they come up for the first degree and you never see them again. It's not for them. Um, no, no one bothers you if you don't want to join. If, if you come through it and you don't like it and you want to leave, no one's going to harass you or say, Hey, you know, show up at your front doorstep or anything like that. Um, it's all completely voluntary. And, um, the one thing I would say is, you know, you know, for me, you know, I can just give you again, my perspective on it was, you know, it, it should be in your heart. If you want to join it, if, if you're being talked into it and you really don't want to do it, you're probably joining for the wrong reason. What about these people who say, for example, uh, somebody's speeding, right? The person is a Freemason. And then the police officer approaches the, the window. He makes a sign. The police officer, who happens to be a Mason, recognizes the sign. And things go differently than what any regular person would go through. Same thing I've been told about the court system. They go in front of a judge, makes a little sign. The judge understands the sign. And... The verdict, uh, if it, there's not a jury involved, that becomes different. Have you heard those? Well, I've heard them, but I've never seen it in action. I'm, I've been a lawyer for 20 years, and I've never in, encountered anything like that. Um, again, you know, it's, it's, I mean, could it happen? Of course. You know, I mean, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I can only speak from my experience. I have no, I've never witnessed it firsthand. I've never had anything like that happen firsthand. Could it have happened? Of course. Um, but I'm not there, so I really have no reason to comment on it. And who presides the Supreme Council? I believe uh, it's Prince, uh, I, can't, I forgot the name, you know it, since 1967. What makes them get elected, and why so many years? Well, that's that's really the English Grand Lodge, um, and I'm not really an expert on that. Um, you know, the, the, you know how, how that's selected and get it selected upon. You're talking to the wrong person. Oh, so there's no no link between the the lodge in the UK and the lodges here. That was destroyed in 1776. Ah, interesting. No relation whatsoever. You see, I love it because these are questions that I've had in my mind, and I don't know why I didn't ask you before. But let's jump into Hollywood too. There's okay. this notion. I'm sorry, you were saying something. 
No, no, we could talk about that. I'll just, I'll just end. Yeah, the, the, there is no, there is no relationship between the American lodges and the English Grand Lodge. That was all completely annihilated in 1776. And I'm going to ask you some questions that I have in my mind. I'm not sure if they're appropriate, but I'll ask anyway. Hollywood, we know that in the past decade or two, it's been devoured by China, by the People's Republic of China. And I'm talking about movie theaters, production companies, you name it. What a great way to change our culture without having to fire a single bullet, just like buying all, all the businesses here. Right. Now, why do I ask you this? Is there Freemasonry in China? No. Hell no. No. Um, you will not find Freemasonry in any totalitarian regimes. Um, Nazi Germany, Communist Russia, Communist China, uh, that's a death sentence. Okay. Interesting to know. But what about their infusion into our culture via uh, Hollywood? Uh, what I just said about the, the movie studios, the, sure. the, 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 the movie theaters, they're just infiltrating left and right every which way in every angle of society. Sure, I, now, I, was just, I was just on another podcast and I was asked this exact same question. Oh, really? The, re the reason for that is because it's a new market. Um, what, what is happening is this is recent. Um, up, until, up until about 20 years ago or probably even 15 when a movie was released, there was two markets that the movie played to the domestic box office, which was the United States and then the international box office. Yes. The, 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 the domestic box office, um, was usually the bulk of the profits. So for example, let's just take a movie. I'm just going to just use this as an example. because this was the one that I, I was looking at was take Batman 89, the one with Jack Nicholson mm -hmm. and Michael Keaton. When that was released in 1989, that did a domestic box office, I believe, around $200 million, which was a staggering amount. That was very good. That was a box office hit. That was just the domestic box office. The international box office primarily at the time consists of Europe, the European market. And if you could make a toe, and of course, I'm not adjusting for inflation. I'm just giving you the numbers in 1989 terms. If you could make a toe of around 40 to 50 million that was that was enormous. I mean, that was huge. Um, so, so Batman '89 pretty much had like a global box office of around 250, maybe 260 million dollars. That was an enormous take. Well, this has all changed now because of China, and now China is now welcoming in Hollywood movies. So this has all changed now, where the domestic box office. If you look at a movie like Cruella, that came out earlier this year with Emma Stone. The domestic take on that was like 150, 160 million dollars. Well, that's not that great. I mean, it's good. I mean, it's not a bomb or anything, but it's certainly not, you know, huge. I mean, it's not a huge number. I mean, it's good. It's a good solid number, but it's not huge. But now, if you look at the domestic box office, I mean, excuse me, the international box office on it, where in the past it would have maybe been around 20, 30 million with, with Europe, Canada, you know, in England and the continent of Europe. Well, if you look at Cru Cruella's you know, international box office is like 210 million. And that's because of China. Um, the, the, the international box office is now overtaking the domestic. And the reason for that is because of China. It has a billion people in it. That's what you're up against. Um, and, and it's because of that, that Hollywood is now marketing towards this new found bank. Um, you know, this box office in China, which is almost guaranteeing that there is no such thing as a box office flop anymore. I mean, China is just devouring 
American movies and culture like No Tomorrow. So if a, if a movie is released in the United States and it tanks um, and it's a bomb and it only makes like 20, 30 million, let's say against a budget of 50, the studio will release it in China where it'll inevitably almost make guarantee like 100 million. Um, so, so that's why Hollywood really is catering to the Chinese market and is why you will never see things. I was just on with another show saying this. You, know, you will never see Hollywood right now make a movie about the Dalai Lama or something like that um, because they know they know it won't air in China. Um, so so that that's where this this Chinese, um, you know, it, it's basically like a brand new market for Hollywood that is really taking advantage of because it's just so much money um, in, involved with it. That that's really what it comes down to. It's just it's just money, plain and simple. And by the way, that movie, nineteen eighty nine, Batman, two hundred million in eighty nine is four hundred and forty two point four million today, adjusting for inflation. But today, sure. for example, I'm thinking of the movie, and I'm glad we're diving into movies now. The movie twenty twelve, who was the savior? China. The remake of Red Dawn was supposed to feature China as the enemy. And when China found out, they ordered the movie and the producers to change everything to make North Korea the enemy instead. What's your take on these two movies? I haven't seen 2012, but no, that, that, that's just it. Hollywood right now is not going to, as it stands right now, is not going to make a movie that's not going to air in China. Um, so whatever it may be, um, you know, they're just not going to do it because of the box office. I mean, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It's a completely double-edged sword because, of course, you're catering to this totalitarian regime. But the problem is it's too much money to turn away from. So, you know, it's, it's what do you want to do? Do you want to you, you want to make a movie that's not going to air in China where you could potentially lose money on it? I mean, or do you want to make a China-friendly movie? Um, you know, and, and not all movies have to be political. But, but in the end, Mel, I mean, and, and this is what, you know, you just said, and I agree with you. I mean, you're just not going to see Hollywood making a movie right now in 2021 that villainizes, that makes China the villain. Um, it's just not going to happen. It's just because the market in China is too strong and Hollywood is just not going to throw that away. And I totally understand it. I mean, if if you have a 1.5 billion people in China, how many people actually watch movies? And I bet you... Uh, they have a very young population, too. I mean, in the United States during this pandemic in the past two years, I wonder what percentage of the population that used to frequent the movie theaters stopped going and are only streaming now. But anyway, 2012, I enjoyed that movie. I mean, come on, it's Hollywood. But it's interesting how the savior, they just portray China as this savior. And if you are a movie producer in the United States and you're told, no. You cannot villainize China because otherwise we're not going to let you bring your movie to China. Obviously, they're going to change that. But the question is, is it because they are afraid not to be able to penetrate the Chinese market? Or, number two, are they changing our culture by portraying China in such a positive way? Well, I, I, think, it's more, I think it's more the first than the second. I think, it's, I think it comes down to money. That's what I think it ultimately comes down to. Um, I mean, certainly many movies that are being released now are not necessarily pro-China. Um, you know, like a movie like, like I said, like Cruella has no political underpinning to it whatsoever. Or, you know, a movie like Halloween Kills or something like that. So the movie, the movie, it, it's really not necessarily the movie has to be pro-China. It just can't be anti-China. 
and I, I my, my I would say in my opinion that it's more motivated by money than anything else. And I guess TV is still safe because, for example, I was watching recently um, the last ship. I just caught up caught up with those seasons. A great TV, you know. Uh, if anybody wants to watch TV and escape from the mainstream media, there are certain shows that I watch. But The Last Ship, it portrayed China as negative. Why? Because it's a TV series, and I don't think TV series make it that much into China. Am I right? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Um, I, I'm not familiar with the TV market. Um, probably not because, you know, of the propaganda in, in China. You know, they'll, they'll, you know, it's like anything else. It's going to have to go through a censor board. Um you know, that's the way all these regimes work. Um, and if, if it passes the censor board, then they'll let it into the country. If it doesn't, then it does. Then it obviously doesn't. And I would I would think that, um, you know, as far as television goes, China, China is probably going to want to clamp, keep a clamp on that. Probably not going to allow uh, American TV into the country, um, but certainly a movie, which is just a one off thing where you go to a theater and see it. Um, and that's it. You know, you just see the movie. That's it. It's not a stream of programs or anything like that or commercials or anything. like that. Um, so, no, I, I think, you know, the, the television is still just local and it's just airing domestically. It's, it's the box office. It's the movie box office that they're not. You may not see something that's pro China, per se, but you're probably not going to see something that's definitely you're not going to you're definitely not. You're definitely not going to see something that's anti China. Put it to you like that. And it, it's money. It, it comes down to money. That's my opinion. Before I started. Speaking with people like you, I used to think that the G in between the square and the compass was G for Gnostic or Gnosis or Gnosticism, but that's nothing could be further from the truth there. They correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't the G standing for geometry? The, the basically, uh, the noblest of sciences and, and the basis upon which the superstructure of Freemasonry and everything in existence in the entire universe is erected. Is that why there's a G there? My understanding is it stands for geometry or God. You can take your pick. Uh, the Masonic literature doesn't pin it down one way or the other. It's either geometry or God. God and or geometry. Of that, that's, that's my understanding of it. Um, you know, if you read the literature, um, it's, it's, it's God or geometry or both. It's a reminder to every Freemason that every act they carry out is done in the presence of God, the master architect of the universe. Gee, interesting. That sounds about right. Now, let go, let's go back in time for the old movies. I'm thinking of the Bates Motel, Psycho. There's some Easter eggs there. What are some of the Easter eggs that were left behind in that movie? Yeah, well, the, the one thing that I really liked in Cinema Symbolism 3 was I, I, TV shows are really hard to take on because you've got to watch so many episodes. Right. Um, I did Twin Peaks, and that consumed the summer of 2019, uh, just doing that alone. But I'm a huge fan of uh, Hitchcock, and I love Psycho, and, and Psycho is has a lot going on in it. I mean, I love the way he plays around with the color schemes, um, with the women's underwear. That's something he played around with in Dial M for Murder, where – you know, it's white before she commits the crime, but then when she's guilty, it's all black lingerie. Um, I mean, there's some subtle things he does with uh, Norman Bates with the painting on the wall that that, that covers the peephole. Um, and there was a TV show that A&E made uh, that came out, I believe it was in 2013, ran for about five years to 17, um, called Bates Motel, which was sort of a modernized retelling of Bates Motel, oh, excuse me, of Psycho. And it was uh, it was just a great series. It was really well done. 
Um, and it paid, I mean, it, it had a lot of esoteric themes in it and it just paid a lot of homages back to the original psycho. I mean, one of the things that just struck out, stuck out of my head. Um, and it, it's just a great example. I mean, if you read the book, it's, it's just a, uh, it's just a great example of how detailed and meticulous these movie makers are in, in creating these films and paying respect to these older movies that they're based upon. Um, in psycho, if, if you remember it, um, the, the dress that, Mrs. Bates was buried in was Periwinkle Blue. And if you watch Bates Motel, the actress who played Norma Bates was Vera Famiga. Um, she routinely wore Periwinkle Blue clothing. I mean, that was a great homage to the original uh, Psycho. And, you know, Hitchcock is one of those guys um, like David Lynch or Aronofsky or Ari Aster, who's just really an expert on, you know, you know, when it comes to using these techniques to convey different things. So, um, Psycho, I really liked, um, and again, it was it was an opportunity for me to not only talk about Psycho, but to also talk about Bates Motel, which was a very, um, which had a lot of uh, Easter eggs, what I call them, um, you know, occult symbolism in it. I wish the newer generation was not, and even us, I think you and I are pretty much closed in age, you know, the attention span for the newer generation is... Now Hollywood, now if you turn on the TV, it's just snippets, like 10 seconds, 20 seconds. You go to the movie, and years ago, you would see the credits at the beginning of the movie, and it would take their time to develop the story. And I recently watched the movie Dune, the newer one, and I actually liked it. Some people said, oh, it's so boring, it's so long, but you didn't have the action sequence, action sequence every 10 seconds. And sure. this is what's making kids just not enjoy the old movies like Hitchcock, all these old movies that did not require that many special effects. They were really natural and they played with your head, with the psychology, with the story. And this is very difficult to see these days. I agree with you, Mel. I agree with you 100 percent. I think a lot of the old movies are, are, are you know, are, are like that. Um, I have not yet seen the new Dune, but I do want to see it. I'm a huge fan of the David Lynch one from 1984. Um So, no, I mean, you know, I, I like, um, you know, the, the, the movies that are very in-depth and that, you know, convey, you know, different meanings and things like that and have the, you know, different interpretation or the occult symbolism or the esoteric underpinning to it. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and it's, it's something that um, I really enjoy watching. I, yeah, I love the older movies. Um, I mean, even, even in, in all my books, I always talk about, I mean, you know, people think, You know, it's, it's a new thing. It is not. Hollywood is just the latest iteration of something that goes back millennia. Um, the idea of using esoteric themes and underpinnings and stories, I mean, you'll find it in the works of William Shakespeare. You'll find it in the works of Mozart. You'll find it in the work of Richard Wagner. You'll find it in the 19th century arts, American authors like Edgar Allan Poe and uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Emerson and Emily Dickinson and uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Scarlet Letter. Um, And then you have Hollywood come along. And even in the early days of Hollywood, movies like The Wizard of Oz or Metropolis, um, these are movies that are very esoteric and have multiple interpretations. And uh, I think they're awesome films also. I mean, it's not just sitting there, you know, you know, what, you know, being bored or anything. I mean, the movies are very good. I mean, they're very entertaining to watch. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I like the movies, the classic horror with the, you know, the cast at the beginning. And then, the, you know, a good cast is always worth repeating. Uh, at the end. So, you know, no, I'm with you. I, I enjoy the old movies. And, uh, you know, when it comes to Hollywood from its inception to current day, um, the idea of esoteric underpinnings has been with it since day one. But I would point out that Hollywood is just the latest incarnation of this thing. 
Um, it's it's been around for a long, long time. I don't know why. After talking about Dune, the movie Flash Gordon, the one from the nineteen eighty, comes to mind. Which, by the way, I really liked, and I love the soundtrack by Queen. And then shortly after, he came up with a Dune, I believe, in nineteen eighty four, as you said. What's your take on, on Flash Gordon and any occult symbolism that you saw in that movie? Do you yeah, remember? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's a David Lynch movie. Um, I can't remember who, who directed Dune or excuse me, Flash Gordon. But Flash Gordon has that one thing in it that I actually point out in the book. Um, and it is it's in there. And I mean, I, I, I don't I think it's intentional. And that's what the character of Clytus, um, who is kind of the conniving, scheming guy behind the scenes. And um, if you look at him. Um, right on his chest is the Masonic square and compasses. Exactly. Um, I mean, I'm sorry. No, I'm saying exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I, I always believed um, that that was intentional and I thought it was just trying to convey, you know, the Masons have always been, you know, con- conveyed or, you know, in, you know, has been viewed, like you said, with the conspiracy and working behind the scenes. And some of it is true. Um, you know, in the early days of the United States, you did have this, sort of Illuminati coterie run by DeWitt Clinton running, running the country behind the scenes. And of course, as you very well adroitly pointed out, you know, at the beginning of the show, this is something that continues to this day. So yeah, I mean, I always, I always kind of looked at Clytus with the square encompasses on his check as being sort of this, you know, kind of guy working in the shadows, pulling the strings behind the scenes. And the square encompass was kind of, you know, designed to evoke, you know, maybe in your, both your conscious and subconscious mind, this idea of the hidden puppet master, which of course Masons are often, if not always accused of being. Um, and there is some truth to it, of course, uh, you know, especially you know, at the beginning of the country. Um, but you know, no, I, I, uh, I, I believe I talk about Clytus in the book. I may have been in part two, but I, I know Clytus gets a honorable mention in there somewhere. It's not the same director. You're right. But the production companies, Dino De Laurentiis, and I'm looking at the wiki of Dino De Laurentiis. I'm looking at all the movies, all the way from 1946 to 2007. If you look at that list, there's a, a plethora of great movies in that list. Sure. Oh, yeah. Dino De Laurentiis was a huge, huge deal in Hollywood. I mean, I think he did Halloween 2. Yes. Um, King yeah, Kong. Admirable sequel. Did, I think, did he produce Dune? 84? Dune. Dune. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I mean, um, yeah. I mean, uh, he, he is definitely a player in Hollywood or was. Um, I, I don't think he's around anymore, but uh, no, no I, I always liked uh, Flash Gordon. I always liked Lynch's Dune. Um, and of course, I like Carpenter's Halloween. And I, I like the sequel to Halloween. Halloween 2, I thought it was a very admirable sequel. So. King Kong was a good movie, 1976 or 77. Really, for that time, uh, it was a really a well-made movie. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't I don't have uh, his list of movies, but no, I remember uh, that movie. That was a remake. I think Jeff Bridges was in it. I actually think I saw that in the theater, to be honest with you. I, I can't remember, though. But I, I know I've seen it. It's been a while. But um, no, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's great, great stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeff Bridges and Jessica Lange. That was, I think that was the very first movie that I ever saw with Jeff Bridges. You mentioned Carpenter, John Carpenter, one of my very favorite directors, especially one of my probably top 10 movies. And, you know, it's a kind of a, a cult classic to me, Escape from New York. What do you say about that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's... Um I thought you were going to say They Live um, was the one I thought you were going to go with. No, I, I like They Live. I love They Live. I love The Thing. 
But there's something about Escape from New York that was just organically made, and it just made sense. I mean, when they try to recreate it in 1994 with Escape from L.A., that, to me, that was bad. Yeah, yeah, I didn't like Escape from L.A. LA either. I'm a huge fan of Carpenter, um, as like you are, and I'm a huge fan of the first Halloween movie, and like you said, you know, even stuff like Escape or um, Big Trouble in Little China, and they live, of course. Yeah. Um, Escape from New York. I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's a great film. I always uh, it's a little far removed. I mean, it's a little too, too far removed. But I mean, of course, you, you do have that little 9-11 imagery in it. Um, yes. You know, with, yeah. With a hijacked aircraft heading into lower Manhattan. It is a little too far. Uh, I mean, I do talk about it in the uh, in the book. Um, there are better examples of 9-11 imagery, uh, certainly closer to the event. But of course, you can't not talk about Escape from New York without talking about without talking about that. But um, no, it's it's a great film. I've I've always been a fan of uh, Escape from New York, and uh, I agree with you. I think there's something organic with it. And uh, I was not a fan of Escape from L.A. I, I don't think it worked very well. No, but, it did not. It um, did not. Yeah, no, I'm I'm a huge fan of Carpenter. But and the actors, the cast, and in, in Escape from New York. I mean, Lee Van Cleef, uh, uh, Ernest Borgnine, all these great people. Uh, Kurt Russell did a magnificent job, on, and of course, he's trying to copy uh, what's his name, Clint Eastwood, in his movies. Uh, you know, when he talks like, uh, "What is it? Make my day." What's his name? Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry. He's trying to emulate Dirty Harry. Harry, but Carpenter is such a futurist. All the things that he does, even part of the movie that they didn't make it. If you have the DVD, you can see the the cuts. You know, the movie's supposed to start with uh, Kurt Russell. I mean, I'm sorry, Snake Plissken. Stealing from the Federal Reserve. I mean, right. Carpenter has these things in mind. Where he kn he knows who the players are, the Federal Reserve, and he knows the corrupt government. And one thing I couldn't understand: why would they put a British guy to play the president? In in that case, well, yeah, Donald. Yeah, he, yeah, he he put uh, Donald Pleasanton probably because right. he knew him from Halloween. Halloween yes, yeah, yeah, and uh, no, Car Carpenter's movies are. You know, you, you usually, I mean, if you look at them, I mean, not all of them, but I mean, if you look at Halloween, there's uh, a lot of sexual underpinnings going on with that. Certainly, They, they Live has the government conspiracy, and you, you can get into a Gnostic theme, of course, in, in They Live with, you know, the, the aliens being archons trying to keep uh, humankind in stasis. So, um, you know, he, he always, I, th I think I saw an interview with Carpenter where he said he sort of looked at it as uh, Escape from New York, as, or excuse me, They Live as sort of sort of this uh, evil version of Reaganomics, as it were. But no, I'm a huge fan of Carpenter, and uh, his movies are generally always, uh, you know, not always, but a, a lot of them have, you know, these esoteric underpinnings. To them. By the way, we were on a roll. I was going to stop at the one hour, but we went a little bit after. We we're going to oh, take yeah. a break. Because things sure. were moving greatly. When we come back, I want to revisit They Live. Because right now, I think people are posting memes all the time about They Live. And it makes more sense now than when the movie came out. I believe it was in the late 80s. But uh, how can people learn more about your work, buy your books, and your new website, Robert? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again for Mel for having me on Veritas. It's my pleasure to be here, and uh, you're a gracious host, and it's uh, wonderful to be here. My my webs my, my books are, are available on any of the major online retailers. My website is my name. Uh, my name is Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth. So it's Robert W. Sullivan I V the letter I the letter V dot com for the fourth. Robert W. Sullivan I V dot com. Uh, if you go there, there are links to purchase the books. You can get the print edition. You can get the ebook. 
Um, there's information about me, information about upcoming shows I'm doing. Um, you know, it, it's a very easy page to navigate. Uh, again, links to buy the books if you want to get on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's all there. RobertWSullivanIV.com. Check it out. It's a very easy website to navigate. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Robert W. Sullivan. One hour when we come back. This is Mel Hoslerick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.